Greetings, people of Earth. I come in peace. <laughs> Welcome to the 145th episode of the Ask Abhijit show. I hope you are all doing extremely well. Um, um, so uh, before we begin, let us see who all is there with us in the comments. In the live chat, I can see Opai, Mahendra, Surekha, Samarth, Sushant, Anisha, Rudra, Kapil, Samarth, Super Samosa, Ayan Singha, Abhishek, King, Salavara, Jeet, Krishna, Hindu, Se, Tavi, Putra, Brijesh, Alok, Light, Yagami, History Exam tomorrow, all the best sir, XKGB Agent, Mayank Tripathi, Srihari, Arun, Janil, Librandu Detector, Subroto, Goshal, Chetan, 100, Aditya, Manish, Asminor, Anish, The Landmark, Typical Gamer, Parth, Prajwal, Suhani, Yum Thang Nabi, Yum Thang Nabi, uh, Vasu, Illuminati Alu, Creek, The Guy, Kapil Kaushik, Kapil Jain, Indian Citizen, Samarpan Singh, C4D2 Suman, Saurabh, Reya, Nandan, Abhinav, Jitendra, Divya, Sailor Says, Melvin, Cyber Geek, Technish, Rahul, Rishi, Su, Sunaina, Aditya, Surekha, Dheeraj, Another Dheeraj, Ayan, Jeet, Martian, Vault Gaming, Dude, Sayan, Alpha, Manohar, Pranab, Akash, Dikshit, Solo Bird, OPT, Rohan, Bharati, Ashima, Skanda, Srihari, Arun, Kapil, Mandar, and lots of other people, Shaheen, Suhani, Mazar, Aditya, Kapil, Aditi, Rhea, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day, all of you. So nice to see you all. So thank you so much for being on the show tonight. You can see some more. Bark, Lavar, Trupti, Kapil, and lots of other people. So uh, as you know, today I will take questions that you have asked in the comments. So let us begin. Let us begin. Let's see what questions we have. I'm sure there's a whole lot of questions. Let us see what we have. Let's begin with question number one. I think we will begin at the right place. You know, what's what's going on in the world right now? Closer to home. <clears throat> Here we are. Here we are. Ankit says, I messaged the Israeli ambassador and thanked him for his stand on Twitter. And I think many like me did, did that. But then, uh, but when I saw him tweeting a random troller message screenshot that somebody praised Hitler in his box, I mean, what was the point of doing that? Either he's naive or a very, very clever person. I lost all my respect for that man. They just want unconditional support from us unconditionally. Right. So what happened? Okay. So the Israeli ambassador. So we know what happened earlier this week. There was this person, Nadav Lapid, who said something extremely uh Unfortunate, he was the head of, he was appointed the head of the jury of an international film festival in Goa. And he said that the Kashmir Files movie is all propaganda and so on and so forth. Something very un unnecessary and annoying. He said it in the presence of the Israeli ambassador and a very high-ranking Indian minister, Mr. Anurag Thakur and so on. Then Mr. the, the uh, Israeli ambassador to India went ahead and uh, laid out a whole tweet thread in which he kind of called out the the person who made this, these comments, the Israeli person who made the comments. And then yesterday or day before yesterday, the Israeli ambassador goes ahead and tweets something. He says that I'm receiving various kinds of uh, threats or, 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 you know, abusive messages on in my Twitter DM box, direct messages. And he put one of the screenshots out there. So I'm going to put it on, on the screen, but uh, do know, be warned that it contains abusive language. I do not usually put abusive language on this show. 
but i'm going to do it for, make an exception because this is something that's already there in public and i think you should know so here's what the israeli ambassador tweeted let me put that on the screen right um one second give me a second where are we all right okay so this is mr naor gilon he uh, tweeted this december 3 8 am which is uh, yesterday 8 am in the morning he says i just wanted to share one of my one of a few dms i got in this direction according to this person's profile the guy has a phd mm, interesting yeah, yeah sure and even though he doesn't deserve my protection i have decided to delete his identifying information because i'm so so virtuous and so so much nicer than him and then it says something about hitler and you know hitler was a great person so, some nonsense like that yeah we don't know who tweeted this who who sent this message to mr naur gilon there is no identifying information twitter is a global platform it could be anybody from anywhere in the world we don't know who did this right and yet this uh, uh, the israeli ambassador went ahead and tweeted this so he is saying that i am receiving abusive messages on twitter and the implication is that indians are tweeting this at him uh, or indians are messaging him like this yeah so that that's the kind of thing so, so let me tell you first of all what he had tweeted earlier so this was the the open letter to nadav lapi following the criticism of kashmir files uh, which we know about yes so uh, i had spoken about this yesterday in the indian interest podcast last uh, 24 hours before today yeah before right now and uh, he calls out nadav lapid in this tweet thread but he doesn't really make any major uh, you know he doesn't really uh, support india's stand on kashmir in this he doesn't really uh, uh, he doesn't refute nadav lapid's claim that uh, kashmir files is propaganda and so on and so forth he's saying you should have been a better guest but i'm not claiming that what you are what you have said is wrong and so on some of the things that mr naur gilon said in this tweet thread and then he goes ahead and tweets this so he's trying to essentially he's trying to shame india and indians saying that indians tweet this sort of stuff so we are victims and you guys are are victimizing us that's the kind of thing he's done so i i tweeted this in response i said that india has proudly and magnanimously rescu- rescued and sheltered helpless jews for over t- for 2000 years with zero anti semitism india never has had any record of anti semitism india is the only culture that has sheltered jews rescued jews and never ever been anti semitic india is the only culture the only civilization that has done that yeah a random anonymous screenshot means nothing and certainly does not represent india and then i say that instead of diffusing tensions you're raising the temperature ambassador very disappointing because that's precisely what he is doing and then when i then i went ahead and tweeted some more Israeli ambassador Naor Gilon's tweet is an undiplomatic unnecessary and uncalled for it is a deliberate provocation an attempt to shame india and indians it hints at ulterior motives and a hidden hidden agenda and i then i when so people have been tweeting at me so i've been responding to them so it's possible that israel as the, as the vassal state which we know it is it is the us's vassal state so maybe the the vassal state israel is doing the overlords bidding the us is bidding we know that the us has been forcing eu and nato nations to act against their own national interests we know what's happening since february the americans have been forcing europe 
to act against their own national interests. Arm twisting them, right? So it would not be surprising if the US is now arm twisting Israel into sabotaging its excellent relationship with India. It's very much possible. The Israelis have to do what the Americans tell them, especially in the field of foreign policy and geopolitics. Yes, the Israelis have no option. So yeah, it's possible. So then I, uh, the last tweet is that earlier this week, Ambassador Naur Gilon called out Nadav Lapid for being a bad guest. Who's being a bad guest now? Who's being the, the bad guest now? Right? So that's the deal. That's what's happening. It looks like this ambassador, this person, Naur Gilon, is deliberately trying to raise tensions, raise the temperature, and you know, you know, create this atmosphere of hostility and, and being a victim, and in, Indians are, are victimizing us, that sort of thing, which is incredibly disappointing that an ambassador would behave like this. An ambassador is a diplomat. Diplomats know how to behave in public, what things to say. Their statements are typically very diplomatic. And this is extremely unfortunate and disappointing what he has done. It is not diplom... This this behavior is not the behavior of a friendly nation or a diplomat. Right? So that's that's the situation that we are in right now. Now, uh, let's let's go ahead and see. I said that India has always rescued Jews, sheltered Jews, helpless Jews. Jews have a, have a history of being helpless the past 2000 plus years. Yeah. Recently, they've become more, less helpless because they have their own nation now, which was created uh, for them by the British and the Americans. And uh, and as U.S. Vassal, they have been able to uh, do very well. I, I yesterday I went ahead and said that I do have the greatest uh, admiration and respect for what Israel as a nation has been able to achieve the past seven, since 1947-48. Yes, I do respect what they have been able to achieve, and I do admire them for a lot of things. But the truth is that Israel is a U.S. vassal state. Without the U.S.'s support, Israel would not have existed, would not have survived the the, the 20th century, right? Uh, and India has never ever ha had a single record in a single instance of anti-semitism india has always sheltered jews the helpless jews right here's an example this is from the times of israel how the indian oscar schindler took in 1000 polish children jewish children during world war ii yeah documentary little poland in india chronicles the selfless rescue of Jewish and Christian kids as India struggled for its own independence. So even when India was struggling with foreign occupation, with the destruction of the Indian economy and the destruction of India and wholesale plunder of India by the British, even at that time, India was rescuing and sheltering helpless Jewish and Christian children. And who, who did that? It was the Maharaja, uh, Maharaja Digvijay Singh Ji, Ranjit Singh Ji Jareja, also known as Jam Sahib. Right, he did this selflessly. He said that I am your father. These kids were all orphans. Yeah, they had lost their parents in second in the second during the events of the Second World War. Mostly Polish kids, some of them Christian, many of them Jewish. Yes. So the Maharaja went ahead and uh, uh, in a princely state in Gujarat, and he decided to adopt these uh, these children for the time being and shelter them in India and look after them uh, uh, as long as the war unfolded yeah and even today some of those kids still survive and they do remember this very fondly and many of them were jews yes jewish refugees so this was in 1942 and so on you can you can read this article you can go ahead and read the article yes uh 
so yeah that, that that's one example of how india has always been kind to the jews magnanimous to the jews how india has always sheltered the jews and so it is extremely disappointing that this person the ambassador of israel to india goes ahead and makes this unsubstantiated allegation in an attempt to shame india and to shame in the indian people the great indian people who have always been kind and magnanimous to the jewish people and to the israelis extremely disappointing it hints at ulterior motives it looks like somebody somewhere doesn't want india and israel to have a good relationship and so so what are the possibilities there are multiple possibilities as to which would which could possibly explain the behavior of this person one possibility is that he has gone rogue and he wants to become a social media star and and you know uh, he needs attention so one of the ways of gaining attention is to is to engage in such stunts that is one possibility yeah the second possibility is that he has received directions to do this from up top from his bosses so who are his bosses he reports to the prime minister of israel or to the foreign minister of israel i mean he um, he reports to the foreign minister of israel yeah so whoever is the foreign minister of israel is a very high ranking, ranking official in israel and the foreign minister would not come up with a foreign policy on his or her own her own it would come at the direction of the prime minister of israel who uh, currently i would believe is morally is benjamin netanyahu which is very surprising because benjamin netanyahu has a history of trying to uh, trying to ameliorate the relationship between india and israel he has been a very strong proponent of a better india israel and stronger india israel, -Israel relationships uh, relationship so yeah so it's, it's it's very strange very perplexing and the third possibility is that maybe it has come from somebody higher than benjamin netanyahu maybe it's come from somewhere else from the overlord of israel which is the united states and i have spoken about this in the past just a month or so ago i spoke about this and the, the somebody had asked me a question i remember you can watch this video that uh, is there a possibility that we know that the kind of relationship india and is in india and the us have now is not very good india has not india has steadfastly refused to to the american line in the uh, Russia Israel Russia Ukraine conflict India is pursuing an independent foreign policy based on its own national interest the americans are not happy about this and we know that france is part of the eu france is part of nato essentially france is a us vassal whether they like it or not it's the truth and similarly israel is also a us vassal state yes so is it possible the question was that india and israel relationship and the india french relationship could change and i believe i had said that yes there is a strong possibility that things could not go things may not stay the same and things may perhaps go kind of downhill to a certain extent i had said this and here we are just a month later we are seeing something like this happening it's never happened before india and israel have had the warmest of relations india and israel has have so much in common our our national interests align they converge to a significant extent there is immense potential for more robust ties between india and israel there's immense potential for further cooperation and a strengthening of the india israel relationship in so many different fields in agriculture in technology in it in space in the military domain in geostrategy i spoke about these things yesterday and despite that despite the fact that there is so much potential for progress in india in the india israel relationship we are witnessing this sort of behavior from the israeli ambassador this kind this essentially tells us that something is something is up something is up something is fishy and i wonder who is 
orchestrating all this it doesn't make any sense for the israelis to go ahead and sabotage their relationship with india i would not say that the relationship has nose dived or anything but the the kind of tweet you see is 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 not behoove it doesn't behoove the ambassador of a friendly nation of a nation that has a strong relationship with india it is unbecoming of a person in that position yes so yeah this this seems to hint that uh, to to the fact that things may not be uh, completely all right yeah i hope that it's it's just a flash in the pan and i hope it's just a mistake by the ambassador i hope he retracts this this statement and deletes this this tweet i'm not even asking for an apology he should just read this tweet and move on as if nothing happened and we will also move on as if nothing happened but yeah it's been two days the tweet is still out there and he's kind of unapologetic so something is up something is up so maybe i was right that you know the relationship between india and israel and the uh, maybe some other relationship also may may change in the coming days that's where we are so yeah that's the deal right now and we will keep an eye on this as we do next question okay in the last episode you said that the israeli ambassador neither denied nor accepted hindu genocide in kashmir how can he do that when the indian government itself hasn't recognized the genocide till date isn't this how diplomacy works imagine if he had said that the genocide was true and even the government of india would have gone against him holocaust is well recognized in the world and is obviously and obviously in israel what are my thoughts well you are right sir so i do not expect the ambassador of israel to go ahead and and, and uh, you know assert that a genocide happened in kashmir or so or and so on and so forth it's not his business to do that nobody has asked him to do that yeah but he should not support uh, a claim that uh, the kashmir files is is uh, propaganda yeah so he kind of called out that individual nadav lapid on that but he did not refute nadav lapid's claim that uh, the movie is propaganda so yeah that, that so he the entire tweet thread that he put out was very diplomatic yeah and it kind of refused to take a stand and kind of did not support india in in a variety of ways which i spoke about in detail yesterday you can you can take a look at that but your larger point is absolutely correct india itself has not recognized the fact that what happened in kashmir was a genocide yes india itself has not recognized this and it's it's a continuation of what something that's happened over a thousand years i call it the, the millennium of humiliation right india has suffered the worst genocide in human history in the past 1000 years i would say at least i don't know i think around 500 million or more than that indians would have died over a period of nearly a millennium yeah which includes the turkic mediated genocide of india and then the european christian in, uh, mediated essentially british mediated genocide of india the british killed at least 100 million indians the, at least 100 million indians in just a few decades most likely they killed around 200 million indians if you if you sum up if you add up everything over over two centuries you know and the turks the turkic invaders and occupiers of india over a period of seven or eight centuries would have killed in my opinion it's it's a, a guesstimate they would have killed around 500 million indians i think the, i'm sure the number doesn't make any sense to you but if you sit down quietly without your with your emotions on the side and try to think about it and try to calculate based on actual records you will see that what i'm saying is very plausible yeah so um, so the truth is that india has suffered the worst genocide in human 
history and the Indian government doesn't recognize this. India's textbooks don't speak about it. India's historians stay far away from this topic. And since India itself hasn't recognized what uh, it went through, why should we expect foreigners, outsiders to care, to bother? So what Rahul is saying over here is 100% correct. Why should we expect the Israeli ambassador to recognize the fact of what happened in Kashmir or what happened at, at, at any other place in India or any other period of time. It is for us to recognize this first. And I think it's because of political expediency that this has never been, this that the politicians and the governments have always steered clear of this matter. Very sensitive issue, they call it. It will create communal tensions and all. I don't understand why it should create communal tensions. We're not talking about people today who did anything. The people, the, the citizens of India who live in India today have nothing to do with what happened over the past 1,000 years. They are, the, the, what they say is that it will create communal tensions between Hindus and Muslims. Because in some way you are accusing Muslims of doing something. Excuse me. Today's Muslims have nothing to do with what happened in the past 1,000 years. Today's Muslims of today's Indian Muslims are in no way responsible whatsoever for what happened a thousand in the past 1,000 years. The people, the individuals, the foreign occupiers and oppressors who conducted the genocide have nothing to do with India's Muslims. So um, that's the deal. But India itself refuses to recognize the fact. See, India, India is a very strange society. India's society suffers from two conditions, two psychological conditions. First, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. India society collectively suffers from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. India society is, 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 is it, it has all these pathologies and problems, so, social problems, societal problems, all these tensions and divides within the society. And these are all the consequence of the of the oppression that we have suffered over the past 1000 years india society has been distorted all kinds of of evil has has crept in from outside and that is a consequence of the past 1000 years of foreign occupation and the total destruction of india society and culture and the way society had evolved over over thousands of years to operate yeah so that is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. We are now no longer under foreign occupation, more or less, and yet we are suffering from the consequences. That's PTSD. So India society, India's society suffers from PTSD. And the second thing India society suffers from is amnesia. No memory of what happened. Why? Because our history textbooks and our, our history teachers will not teach us what really happened. So today's kids grow up knowing nothing. And they see all these problems in society, so they blame themselves. They blame themselves and they, they blame their ancestors. That It's all because of our own fault. That's the problem. And who will resolve this? The Indian government, whom we elect and to whom we pay taxes, it's their duty, it's their job to do this. And they are not doing it. Since 2014, people have been saying that now it's time to do it, but no. <laughs> they refuse to do it. So that is extremely disappointing.
So what Rahul says is correct. Why should we expect foreigners who have nothing to do with us? Why should we expect them to recognize what happened in India? We have to recognize it first. Our government should do it first. And it's not done yet. So yeah, correct. Absolutely correct. Kaushal says, <clears throat> is it true that Indian Jews who traveled to Israel during its reformation days and even later were highly marginalized and persecuted? Please throw some light on this matter. Interesting question you ask, my friend. Yes? Interesting question. So Israel was recreated in 1947-48, around that time, yes? Yeah, there's a whole history behind that. If you want one of these days, I could talk about it. Yeah, it's an interesting story. The Jews have a roughly 3,000-year history. And uh, their, their original homeland is what is current, is the region that is now roughly the region that's currently Israel. A whole story in behind that. So, <clears throat> Israel was created <clears throat> uh, in 1947-1948, around that time, yes. And then there was this concept of Aliyah, that all Jews have the right to return the right of return to Israel. So no matter where you live in the world, if you are a Jewish person, you have the right to go and uh, immigrate to Israel and, and live there. And the moment you reach there, the Israelis will give you certain things like money and some, some kind of job or whatever based on your qualifications and things like that and try to integrate you into Israeli society. So if you are a Jewish person, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what the color of your skin is, doesn't matter. You have the right to go and live in Israel and become an Israeli citizen. Yeah. So many Indians, <clears throat> so India, like I said, some time ago, a few minutes ago, has been sheltering Jews who, helpless Jews who came to India for shelter for at least 2000 years. A whole bunch of Jews came to India, Yehudis came to India after the destruction of the uh, uh, Temple of Solomon by the, at the hands of the Romans in around, what, what year was, was it? Was it 82 AD? Don't hold me to that date. I think it was 82 AD or somewhere around there. Somewhere around that. If you are interested, uh, look up the dates yourself. I don't, I don't memorize everything. So, uh, so there was this uh, entire persecution of the Jews by the Romans. The, the Romans had occupied the land. They were great conquerors. They conquered Judea, and uh, many of these Jewish people were expelled out of Judea, and they were forced to settle in various other parts of the world, in Europe, in the Roman Empire. Some of them escaped and came to India. So I think that's the first occasion in which uh, you find Jewish refugees arriving in India and India treated them with great, well, what shall we say, magnanimity and gave them a place to stay in India and did not force them to convert to any other religion and become whatever you you do, you, you be you, you do what you want and we will allow you to live there. India has always been like that. So these people have been, uh, these uh, the original Jews who came around that time have been living in India for around, around 2000 years. And then there were many other waves of, of uh, refugees, Jewish refugees coming into India. And then later you had the Baghdadi Jews, the Sassoons, who were drug smugglers, etc. And all that. There's a whole different story. Who also lived in India? Um, and so on and so forth. Yes. So there have been various Jewish communities in various parts of India, in Malabar, down south, in Kerala, um, in the Mumbai region, and various other parts of India. Yeah, You, you can look up the history if, you, if you're interested. I'll not go into the details right now, because that's not what we're talking about. So when Israel was recreated, uh, this opportunity arose for Jewish people, for the Jewish people of India, to possibly migrate to Israel. Because we know what happened to India. India was destroyed completely thoroughly by the British. India was a very, it was a terrible place to live in. 
complete poverty, destitution. And then you had the Nehruvian era in which there was no growth in India. India's incredible potential was stifled and suppressed. Yes. So it made sense for people to get out of India for, 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 better, for a better future for themselves and their families and their children and their descendants. So many of the Indian Jews decided to, to, to move to Israel. Lots of Indian Jews. Yeah. And then the question is, what happened to those people? Shall we take a look at that? Yeah, um, let's put some of this uh, interesting material on the screen. Let's do that. What happened to India's Jews? What happened to India's Jews who went to Israel? Right. So this is a um, BBC news article. Israel's Indian Jews and their lives in the quote-unquote promised land. So in uh, so let's see what it says here. Return to the promised land. The Bene Israeli population, it thought it is thought to number around 80,000. They came from the western Indian state of Maharashtra. So around 80,000 Maharashtrian Jews went to Israel. A few of some of them migrated in the 50s and 60s. Uh, before leaving India, they had ready to return to the promised land by being taught Hebrew and some Jewish prayers and all that. So they were hardly Jewish at all. They were all Indian. I mean, they even look Indian. There's no no Israeli or Jewish appearance. Yeah, they look like Indians. Um, so um, it did not go. The migration did not go as smoothly as hoped. Uh, Mr. Gudekar says that, like many others of his community, his family were discriminated against because of their darker skin color and because they could not speak fluent Hebrew. So today, the dominant uh, Jewish people in Israel are the are the white so-called white Jews, yeah, the European origin Jews. There are two kinds of Jews. The Ashkenazi, there are multi, many kinds of Jews, obviously. The Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. The Sephardim, I believe, are the brown-skinned original Jews. The original Jews were Middle Eastern people. They were brown-skinned people. They were not white people. Then a whole bunch of Jews were forced to migrate to the Roman Empire, to various parts of Europe. It's a whole story because of the Romans and then because of the Ottomans, because of the, uh, during the Crusades and all that. And uh, during the time of Salahdin and so on and so forth, there were various waves of migrations. Yeah. So then these Jews who lived in Europe, they obviously intermingled with the locals over time, over centuries, and they acquired uh, European appearance. So you will say that most of the uh, prominent Jews in Israel are European origin Jews. Yeah. And then it's strange that despite the Jews originally being a brown-skinned people, there was this, there is today discrimination against people, against Jews in Israel who are not white. So, yeah, so there was discrimination. There were These people were allotted an inferior home built of asbestos and tin. They, Mr. Goodacre says his father often regretted living their, leaving their life in India, but they had burned all their bridges with Mumbai. Uh, there is more, there is more. Other people also agree that the community faced discrimination as soon as they arrived in the country. Um, they were the dark, I don't think people, Israelis had seen Indians in the 1950s. They were the darkest group in Israel, which seems extraordinary today. Uh, grocery shop owners would give them black bread, telling them it was for black people. Yes. <laughs> uh, the biggest crisis faced by the community was in 1962 when a rabbi, rabbinic council decreed that the Bene Israelis or Indian Israelis Indian Jews would have to fa have their maternal ancestry investigated if they wanted to marry Jews from other communities, which means that there were there was an attempt to prevent them from marrying with other Jews within Israel, in Israel, 
and they and something like that. And eventually, the, the this thing, uh, eventually they finally succeeded in seeing their demands fulfilled, and so on. So that's one example of what happened to the Indian origin Jews. There is this other article which is more recent. Indian Jews in Israel, it wasn't the promised land. It's behind a paywall. So let me go to this Twitter thread by Ruchir Sharma. 73 years ago, Israel made a promise to Indian Jews it did not keep. It invited them to return to the promised land, but went back on its word, sometimes with heart-wrenching consequences. Many Indian Jews packed up their lives and livelihoods and made the Aliyah, a religious phrase that describes moving to the land of Israel. They had no idea just how miserable they would they would be. The homes assigned to Indian Jews were tents, wooden huts, and tin houses, whereas European Jews were assigned more permanent structures, including apartments and even fully furnished villas. European Jews were put up in hotels until permanent accommodation could be allotted. The Jewish agency had promised education for children, but access to this too was given along the lines of race. Indian children were given a primary education, whereas European children received a university-level education. Many Indian Jews had quit government jobs and shut their businesses to settle in Israel. But the new positions they were assigned were far inferior to what they enjoyed in India, and also far inferior to their qualifications. They were given temporary work at low salaries. In healthcare also, European Jews were given priority. They were given priority in the allotment of hospital rooms, even over extremely sick Indians. Sometimes non-European Jews were apparently turned away and told to return later when the patient needed more urgent care. One letter from an Indian Jew to the Israeli government said, Promises were made to us by the Israeli authorities in India by the Israeli authorities that work will be given to us in Israel according to our profession. Very good education to our children and decent houses to stay. Therefore, we agreed to resign from our very long service jobs, our very good homes and the education of our children to come to Israel and find out just the contrary of what was promised to us. And we are your victims by your false promises. We now appeal to all men with conscience and in fair name of humanity to raise their voices and ask why this, why are the Sephardis, the brown-skinned Jews and the Indians in particular, why are they treated like this? And, uh, and uh, human living and what is our future? It is only, is it only to fight wars for you all and nothing else? Right? One letter addressed to Prime Minister Nehru said, We beg and pray, Honorable Sir, God of peace and justice, to help your Indian children in distress and ask the merciless rulers of Israel to repatriate us to <laughs> back to our dear mother country, India. Long live India. When Indian Jews were asked, they asked for permission to conduct peaceful protests in, Israel, in Jerusalem, their request was denied. So they continued to write to the governments and prime ministers of both countries and to human rights groups, highlighting this their plight and asking for re relief and rescue. But this too posed a challenge. Israel, Indian Jews were questioned even about their complaints to human rights bodies and, the, and to the Indian government. The Israeli authorities had apparently threatened them with imprisonment if they continued to write these letters of complaint. Here's more. Israel gave birth control to, to Ethiopian Jews without their consent. That's called racism and that's called human rights abuses. Little, whole, little hope of change for Israel's marginalized groups. Ethiopian Israeli protester is arrested in Jerusalem. You can check this out. More racism in Israel. The murder of a young Bnai Menashe immigrant. The Bnai Menashe are Northeast Indian Jews. 
they seem to believe that they are Jews. The Israelis have done various investigations, genetic investigations, tests and all. And they have been able to find absolutely no Jewish or Hebrew, I mean, Jewish or Israeli ancestry. But they have agreed to give these, uh, the so-called, these, these B'nai Menashe people from Northeast India, essentially in, in Manipur and Nagaland, the Haukips, etc. The Israelis have uh, decided to give them citizenship and then see how they are treated. For a Jewish teenager in Israel to beat, kick and stab a fellow, fellow Jew to death because of his facial features, because his facial features are viewed as being different, how is such a thing even possible? Well, it is possible if the person looks like a Northeast Indian person. So that's what uh, Indian uh, Jews are facing there. India's, uh, what is this? India's Jewish lost tribe faces hard times in Israel. You can read this as well, what they are facing, what they are going through. So the same racism, the same marginalization and discrimination. B'nai Menashe break silence to protest their subjugation to NGO controlling their aliyah. Immigrants from India call out Shavai Israel, which they say uses intimidation to silence detractors. The private organization deny, denies the allegations, whatever. Dozens of members of the B'nai Menashe community gathered in Tel Aviv to protest what they described their as their subjugation, and so on. Addressing the racism that exists towards the B'nai Menashe community. These are Northeast Indians who believe that they are Jews, mm -hmm. and so on. So these are this is just a sample, a small sample of what Indians face in Israel. Those Indians who have decided to uh, migrate to Israel because they have apparently Jewish origin, and for for a better future because Israel is a first world country and with better access, better education, better lifestyle, better living standards, and so on. So that's the real reason why people move to another country. Yeah. So that's the kind of situation. That that's the kind of these are the kind of problems and and challenges that Indian origin Jews face in Israel to this day. It's not something that happened in the past. Racism. Discrimination, not only Indian origin Jews, but African origin Jews, Ethiopian origin Jews, and even the Sephardim, the Sephardim, the brown-skinned original Jews, even they face this discrimination from their fellow Jews because the dominant ethnicity, the Jewish ethnicity, is the, is the European Jews, the Ashkenazim. That's the truth. Yes. So yeah, that's the answer to your question. If you are all interested in knowing more, do read. It's all available online. All right. <clears throat> okay, next question. Alka says, Maldives and Australia denied participating in the Indian Ocean meet held by China. Major embarrassment for China? What do you think? Interesting. So, yeah, what happened? I don't think it's a major embarrassment for China. I think it's a major embarrassment for, for who? I think it's a major embarrassment for the Indian media. Because it's the Indian media that was that was reporting that uh, that the that Maldives and Australia also participated in this event. For instance, let me show this. So this, I believe, is an article I had shared at the time. I think a week ago. It's by NDTV. Big big surprise, yeah. And now they have edited the article. They have edited it. At that time, it was saying 21 countries or something. Now they have changed the headline to 19 countries, and they have removed the names of those two nations. No thanks. Uh, Maldives and Australia. At that time, they had reported that Maldives and Australia had participated. So I think it's a major embar embarrassment for the substandard journalists of India. I'm not saying all Indian journalists are substandard. There are some brilliant 
and really worthy journalists in India. But overall, the mainstream media is all, you know, what the the standards are like. So I think it's a major embarrassment for the Indian media houses and the journalists who reported this fiction that the Maldives and Australia had participated in this Indian Ocean meat um, thing by China. So, yeah, it's a good thing. So the Maldives, as we know, until recently, until you know the past decade or so, the Maldives were, were strongly under China's influence. And now they have declined. They, it, it's emerged that they declined. They refused to participate in this meeting, which was held by China. Excellent. Very good. And Australia, obviously, Australia is a nation that feels extremely threatened by China. Australia and China, the relationship has deteriorated, deteriorated greatly over the past few years. Australia is a member of the Quad, which is India and the US and two vassal states of the US. Yes. So, um, so that is the situation. That's what's going on. And uh, yeah, it's not very surprising that these two nations... Uh, chose not to get involved in this uh, Chinese-led initiative. So it's not a major embarrassment for China. The Chinese don't feel embarrassed about these things. It's, it's in, even I would not feel embarrassed if, if you invite 25 countries and 21 only or only 19 come. It's fine. It's their choice. It's not embarrassing. They'll keep trying. They'll keep pushing. That's the kind of nation China is and that's the kind of objectives they have. Extremely, they, they are an expansionist, hegemonic imperialistic nation and we will have to stay on our, on our toes and do everything in our power to push back against their expansionism yeah right so that's about that so yeah i thought i should uh, take this up and and clear because at that time last week i had also said because of the media reports that the maldives and australia participated in that in that uh, event well it's not so and good Ramalakshmi says, what do you think of the 48,000-year-old frozen zombie virus in Siberia? Oh, so scary. Scary. Viruses are intact until they are in uh, host. So do these viruses hold any threat if we are contaminated or exposed in any way? And Manish says, what's about this zombie virus that came in the news recently? Is that a threat for the human race? Will it be as catastrophic as we see in the movies? Oh, I'm so scared. A zombie virus. You know, um, as you all know, I, I uh, have done a lot of podcasts with Ranveer Anavadia on the on the Ranveer show, yeah. And I remember last year in one of the first podcasts I did with him, I said something which was rather unfortunate. I said that this could be the decade of the virus. When I did this podcast, with India was still in uh, under a situation of lock quasi lockdown situation. It was kind of iffy whether we should go out and travel or not, yeah. So yeah, the virus was very much there. The the pandemic was very much on at the time. And at that time, we had this discussion and I had said that this could actually be the decade of the virus. I, I so hope it's not the case. I so hope so. I so hope that this is not the decade of the virus. We've had enough of viruses. One was enough. We don't want more. And now we see this news. <laughs> so what is the deal? What is this thing about? Let's, let's, put, the, uh, let's put a news report on the screen. Zombie virus. Ooh, so scary. I don't like. Okay, let me put it on the screen. Okay, a few uh, news reports about what's happened. Look at this. Fox News. Scientists revive 48.5,000 year old zombie virus from Siberian permafrost. So, what's the permafrost? Uh, see, if you... Um, the permafrost region is that part of the... Um, 
of the ground that is permanently frozen so if you go to higher latitudes if you go to higher latitudes in the earth you know near the arctic circle and all in the in the siberian region etc the ground is permanently frozen because it's so cold there so that is called the permafrost that region where the ground is permanently always frozen 12 months of the year even in summer it doesn't thaw it stays frozen so that's the permafrost but now because of global warming some of this permafrost is beginning to to thaw and then what happens is that the ice melts the snow melts and the ground unfreezes it thaws and whatever was trapped in the ground for thousands and thousands of years it kind of gets untrapped and it may it may get exposed to the atmosphere and, and whatever is in there may make its way out into the world so you will find perhaps carcasses you know frozen frozen carcasses of mammoths and other other ice age animals that's interesting but you will also find uh, viruses and bacteria and stuff like that and other parasites you may find some ancient plants coming back to li- to life possibly but what really concerns us is that you may see ancient microorganisms uh coming out into the open again and you know the thing is some microorganisms can stay dormant but alive for not just thousands of years but millions of years here's an example look at this bacteria so this is a report from 2021 scientific american bacteria in 100 million year old seafloor sediment have been resuscitated these bacteria were entombed in the sediment under the sea so it's essentially bacteria encased in rock essentially that's what it is and this sediment was a 100 million years old so this bacteria had been trapped inside for a 100 million years a hundred million years and these have been resuscitated they have come back to life and i have seen other reports as well in which uh, people drilled you know hundreds of meters underground into the bedrock of the of the earth they pulled out cores samples of rock which were like hundreds of meters underground and th- this rock was obviously you know it had been under the, down there for hundreds of millions of years and they found bacteria in there and those bacteria were they were able to re- reanimate those bacteria so bacteria can remain dormant for hundreds of millions of years and not die and that indicates that, that would tell us that you know it's possible to bring back very ancient bacteria back to life just imagine how scary that is and similarly viruses viruses are well very strange creatures they are i mean it's not sure how to classify them they exhibit some characteristics of living beings and they also exhibit some characteristics of non living beings so viruses are on the dividing line between life and and between between living beings and non living beings so viruses also can survive for a very long time the only thing is that they have they have rna and dna and all that yeah viruses so yes so now these scientists whoever they are have revived these ancient zombie viruses frozen for eons in siberia this is the actual uh, scientific uh, research paper an update on eukaryotic viruses revived from ancient permafrost yeah so yeah that's what's happened very ancient virus has been uh, viruses have been revived not just one but multiple viruses so yeah we would call them 
zombie viruses and all that so is this dangerous yes of course it's it is potentially dangerous you see we know less than 1% of all viruses you take a spoonful or or a glass full of sea water it contains all kinds of unknown viruses viruses that have never been you know uh, classified and viruses that have never been studied so viruses are all around us most of the viruses we don't even know what they are and scientists have never even studied them so viruses are all around us microorganisms are all around us bacteria are all around us and so on and so forth and we have evolved on this planet for millions of years for billions of years i mean our ancestors were shrew like creatures 66 million million years ago when the non avian dinosaurs went kaboom and even before that our ancestors lived so we our origin goes back to the very first primal life on earth you know 3.77 billion years ago so we have survived 3.77 billion years at least on the planet and we have we have evolved in such a way that we know how to deal with these various viruses and bacteria and yet some of them if they have not been around for thousands of years or, or maybe tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of years then they could pose a significant threat to us i would not say that uh, a new virus comes out and kills off all humanity but yeah it could cause a significant problem like what we have just experienced and we don't want that so i think that these frozen zombie viruses are very dangerous potentially very dangerous and these scientists who are studying them should exercise the utmost caution please for the sake of the gods please exercise as much caution as you can we do not want a repeat of 2019 2020 and so on the chinese are still struggling with that we do not want any new virus please please for the sake of the gods don't do that all right um purnima says people like ian hancock talk about egypt indonesia turkey uh, the mounds in america etc but never ever talk about bharat why major biases against india this is why i do not like hancock and all these other stooges on programs like gaia etc they all talk about the incas the mayas the, um, egypt gobekli tepe etc but nothing about india crickets cricket yeah absolutely horrible and ridiculous and i agree with purnima so i i believe that uh, graham hancock actually did visit uh, india on a couple of occasions if i'm not mistaken many years ago and it is uh, likely that he even wrote about it in one of his books that was published early in the 21st century 2002 2003 or something long ago i believe he had dived uh, around the 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 uh, the archaeological site of ancient dwarka and all that a long time ago once or twice uh, and at some point in time he even wrote about it but if you look at the latest uh, tv series that he has come up with ancient apocalypse he doesn't refer to india at all and he actually claims that zoroastrianism is possibly the oldest religion in the world which is actually laughable yes so yes it is kind of uh, strange and disappointing that graham hancock has this attitude he was not always like this but yes he has chosen to uh, disregard india we know i think everyone in the world knows that india is the oldest known civilization and also the oldest surviving civilization in the whole world so yeah i i spoke about this a couple of weeks ago as well i'm sure i kind of reviewed very cursorily graham hancock's latest work ancient apocalypse so there is this a uh, deliberate there is this this uh, pattern of behavior that you see among these researchers uh, 
including Graham Hancock, of, of deliberately not speaking about India, of deliberately uh, not telling the world about the truth about India or anything about India at all. Just don't speak about India. Speak about Egypt and speak about Mesopotamia and, and uh, Gigantia in, in, in Malta. Speak about the Incas and the Aztecs and Quetzalcoatl and, and uh, uh, various other gods. Speak about uh, Gudang Panag in Indonesia. Yeah. Speak about Gobekli Tepe. Other places, but just don't speak about India, which is, well, it obviously speaks about a certain bias that these people have. And the reason why, see, Graham Hancock is an important uh, researcher. I don't agree with everything he says, but he does make some good points that, you know, a lot of the uh, mainstream interpretations are incredibly correct, uh, in, are totally incorrect. I beg your pardon, are totally incorrect. Um, there is a lot of groupthink in archaeology. There is a refusal to see facts and to and to interpret things properly, uh, and so on and so forth. So that also applies to India. So certain things are true. Uh, he has been talking about the younger Dryas impact hypothesis, which kind of has a lot of uh, evidence that supports it. You know, of late, a lot of evidence has emerged that does support what he has been talking about for a long time. So it's good to see that part of what he has been claiming vindicated but there is a lot that he that lot lot that he speaks about that doesn't make sense first of all he speaks he makes the claim over and over and over again that there was one single ancient highly technologically advanced civilization from which everything else emerged he says that before the younger dryas dryas impact before the calamity at the end of the last ice age there was before that a very highly technologically advanced civilization. That's what he says. It's possible. But the, the theory that he has put forth is it's termed, the, the, the term that's used for it is hyperdiffusionism. Hyperdiffusionism, which what is what does it mean? What, what does this term mean? So hyperdiffusionism means that it is the claim that certain cultural traits, certain intellectual advancements certain scientific advancements and certain technologies originated in a single culturally and uh, overall technologically advanced civilization. Just one civilization. And then it, it, all these things they spread to other cultures from this one civilization. This is called hyper-diffusionism. And that is totally pseudo-scientific. Where is your evidence that there was just one advanced civilization? Why not five advanced cultures or seven advanced cultures why just one you know so that doesn't make any sense whatsoever there is zero evidence that supports this claim and yet he keeps on repeating this claim over and over again so there is a lot to admire about the guy and there is a lot that the guy is completely wrong about or at least it doesn't make any sense there are so many leaps of imagination that are not support, that are completely unsupported by data. And there is a very curious uh, insistence on, 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 on not speaking about India. You, you go across the globe, you go to Mexico, you go to South America, you go to the Caribbean, you go to Bimini, you go to Egypt, you go to Indonesia, you go to Malta, you go to Turkey, you go all across the world, but you refuse to go to India, which is known to be the most ancient civilization. So, you know, this smacks of bias. And so that's why what Purnima is saying is entirely correct. So, so you know, Graham Hancock is important. It is worthwhile to study 
his writings, his research, but it doesn't fill all the gaps. And it, it, uh, I have not, I have not read all his books. Yeah, I just have one right now. It's, the, it's about, uh, it's about America. So that's something I still have to read. But yeah, so I think it's worthwhile to study his work and to read his work. But it, the, one has to be careful because a lot of his assumptions are incorrect. A lot of his assumptions are, are, of, are, 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 are uh, something that comes out of his imagination, un, unsupported by data. But yeah, it's it's uh, certainly worthwhile to study his work to fill in some of the gaps and some understanding that we may have. Okay, Saurabh says, did Harappans know how to perform brain as well as dental surgery? Some finding points out this consensus. All right, Harappans and surgery. Um, we do know that uh, that the Harappans. I mean, look, the Harappans are not some extinct people. Yes? So when we talk about did Harappans do this or did Harappans do that, we are talking about our ancestors. The Harappans were not some people who disappeared. It was not some civilization that existed and it, it no longer exists. It is a continuation. We today are a continuation of the so-called Harappan or Indus Valley people. Right? It is the same civilization. It's a, today's India is a continuation of that civilization. So it was one phase, a specific phase of the 10,000 plus year old Indian civilization. That was the so-called Harappan period. So the people of that time, those the people, our ancestors who lived at that time, we know that they did perform various kinds of surgery. Let's see what kind of surgery they performed, shall we? Let me put something on the screen. Here we are. Excuse me. So, this is um, a news report. Dig uncovers ancient roots of dentistry, proving prehistoric man's ingenuity to blah, 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 blah. So, uh, researchers have found that dental drilling, drilling dates back 9,000 years. So, uh, they talk about Pakistan, which is obviously temporarily a separate nation, but it is uh, our ancestral land and uh, part of the Saptasindhu region where our ancestors lived during the so-called, where, where some of our ancestors lived during the so-called Harappan period. Yeah. So, uh, so they, have, they have discovered evidence of ancient dentistry that dates back around 9,000 years in the Saptasindhu, in the Saraswati Sindhu region, which is temporarily part of Pakistan. Yeah. So, uh, so they, what's written here is that primitive dentists drilled nearly perfect holes into live but undoubtedly unhappy patients between 5,500 BC and 7,000 BC and so on and so forth. Yep, researchers carbon dated at least nine skulls with 11 drill holes found in a in a graveyard in this region. They call it Pakistan and so on. So yeah, the, the, here's an example of a tooth that was drilled, very, very well drilled tooth, almost perfect holes and all that. And this is a reconstruction or rec recreation of what uh, was done at the time by our ancestors. So we know that our ancestors from the so-called Harappan period knew how to uh, perform dental surgery. Did they do this or without anesthesia? I mean, so that article assumes that it was done without anesthesia, but that's an assumption that has no basis in fact. We've had uh, the ancient system of Ayurveda and all that, which was very advanced. It's possible that we had uh, painkillers 
of various kinds that were used to maybe number the part of the tooth, the, the part of the jaw locally and, and provide some relief from the pain and so on. But yeah, that's beside the point. So yes, our ancestors from that time knew how to perform dental surgery. I am not sure about brain surgery. We know there was the ancient practice of trepanation that was performed by ancient peoples much before, much older than the that uh, than our ancestors from the Harappan times. Yeah, uh, trepanation was when you drill a small circular hole into the brain of an individual of a live individual. So sometimes what happens is that you know there are cranial injuries, head injuries, somebody falls down from a tree, for instance, or from a cliff, you are climbing to, to, to gather honey and you fall from there, you fall 10 feet, 20 feet or whatever, you bang your head. And what happens is that the brain swells up inside, there is pressure that builds up and that can sometimes kill people. So one of the ways of relieving that is to drill a hole or something to, to relieve the pressure. So people, uh, archaeologists have found many ancient skulls in various parts of the world with those uh, trepanation uh, sort of procedures visible in that, you know, a hole that was drilled. And then you can see that the bone has healed around it, which means that the, that the person lived and survived the procedure. I'm not sure if they have found that sort of thing in, in the Saraswati Sindhu region. Maybe they have. I have not come across it myself as far as I can remember. But yes, uh, I think that if ancient peoples you know, from the primitive hunter-gatherer times, apparently, were able to do it, then I'm sure that our ancestors in the Saraswati Sindhu region would have had uh, better procedures for for uh, cranial surgery, possibly brain surgery. We don't have evidence as far as I know, but it is certainly possible. But we do have very clear evidence of dental surgery, proper dental surgery being performed, proper drilling of holes, very rapidly, very rapid drilling of holes. And good, you know, precise holes being drilled in, into people's teeth about 9,000 years before today. Yeah. So that indicates that technology was advanced, I mean, to a certain degree, 9,000 years before today. So yeah, that tells you about the kind of uh, lives our ancestors lived in this region all those years ago. So that's what I can tell you. Okay, Poojan says, you have talked about the sunken city of Dwarka before that is being found. Uh, still, why don't we get much news, proper images or documents about it? I also, also, I heard that the ASI, Archaeological Study of, Survey of India, has stopped doing more research there. Shouldn't we study those ruins to get a better idea about our ancient India? I think we should study those ruins to get a better idea of, of ancient India. You know, it's, it's, it's disappointing and it's perplexing that somebody like Graham Hancock, we, which whom we just spoke about just a minute ago, someone like him, with the help of private funds, with the help of Netflix or whoever has helped him to make the movie, he has been able to go across the world to seven or eight ancient sites with high technology, with drones, with LIDAR, the, the uh, technology that uh, helps you peer under the ground and, and discern what kind of uh, structures lie below the surface of the earth. Several tens of meters below the earth. He has access to that technology. He has access to sonar technology that allows you to, to map the, the, the seabed, the ocean floor, you know. So a guy, a private, a private individual and a private filmmaking company with whatever produ production producer he has was able to acquire all this technology and, and show so much detail in that TV series, Ancient Apocalypse with just private funding. In the case of the ASI, they have the, the 
funding that comes from the government of India, one of the most powerful and richest governments in the world. And still we have no idea of what lies below the surface of the ocean at Dwarka. No, no images have been released. Whatever images were released were from, were from 20, 30 years ago. It is so disappointing that the ASI is not doing this. They have the funds. If they don't have the funds, publicize it. The government has the money. The government has the money to do this. I would like to see the ASI or who, the first of all, the ASI is, is, is <laughs> I've said this so many times. I think the ASI is, is incompetent. I'm sure there are some good archaeologists in the ASI. We know in the past there have been some really good archaeologists. Dr. S.R. SR Rao comes to mind. And obviously, uh, Dr. B.B. Lyle, one of the greatest archaeologists the world has ever seen. Yes, two such uh, very prominent people come to mind. So the ASI, I'm sure even today would have some good archaeologists. But overall, it's a bunch of bureaucrats who run the show. Yeah. And we know what the ASI is doing. So many temples under its its protection. They have been plundered. The idols have been stolen. They end up in, in Western uh, auction houses. We can see online auctions of, of Saraswati Sindhu artifacts happening all over the world. Yes. There are various... There is a site called Vatican.com on which you can see it. I wonder where those artifacts are being plundered from. Some of them would be plundered from the Pakistani side of the Saraswati Sindhu region. But I expect some of them would be plundered from the Indian part as well, which is which would which would come under ASI protection. There are so many articles I can put on the screen that attest to the fact that ASI protected monuments are being plundered. The ASI is incompetent. I think the ASI should be disbanded, and the money should be reinvested in creating into creating a professional organization run by professionals, not by bureaucrats, incompetent bureaucrats. So that's the first thing I would like to say. The ASI needs to be disbanded and a new professional organization needs to be created which is which which has dedicated professional archaeologists who are dedicated to their work. And then we need to identify the sites that really need to be preserved and investigated instead of instead of renovating and protecting and embellishing Turkic monuments, the 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 monuments that testify to the past millennium of humiliation of India, we should look into this, the, the sites like Dwarka, etc. You know, there is an ancient uh, city complex in the Gulf of Hambath. Not just one ancient archaeological, archaeological site, but a whole cluster of archaeological sites under the ocean, 30-40 meters below the, below the surface of the, of the ocean, on the seabed. This uh, complex, uh, this archaeological archaeological complex is at least at least nine to eleven to twelve thousand years old. It's a it's a cluster of ancient cities that our ancestors built, you know. And what's being done there? Nothing. No investigation whatsoever. Why don't they use sonar to map the seabed and and produce proper images of what the 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 site looks like? Those, those archaeological sites look like? Why don't we see new images, proper image of, images of Dwarka? The entire layout of the, of the ancient city. Nothing is being done. It is so frustrating. 
So yeah, if if a private individual with limited access to money and funds like Graham Hancock can produce such a wonderful documentary, a very well produced documentary like like Ancient Apocalypse, why can't the ASI or the government of India do something about these ancient sites and let the public know, let the people of India know and the world know what lies below the ocean? What did the ancient city of Dwarka, the underwater submerged city of Dwarka look like? What did it look like when it was above the ocean or at least show us the layout of the city the architecture and the uh, the 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 map of the ancient city and how how it would per- perhaps have looked like you know and and the in uh, the uh, gulf of khambat archaeological complex why why can't we do it it's so frustrating we have the funds we have the money we have an organization like the asi uh, i just don't get it very frustrating Okay, Roshni says you have said that you have said that the Indian population doesn't have Neanderthal DNA, and that it is one of the things that disproves the Aryan invasion theory. I did a DNA test with 23andMe, and the results came back as 100% Indian, mostly mostly North, and also that I have more Neanderthal DNA than 81% of 23andMe users. My dad has more than 91% of users. This is perplexing to me. Most users in 23andMe are European, of European origin, ancestry. Is there an alternative explanation to this? Okay. So what I had said, uh, I did say that apparently the majority of the Indian population has almost no Neanderthal ancestry. This is something that Dr. Neeraj Rai had said. Now, the research is not out yet. So it's something that was said verbally. We still have to see the actual result, uh, research paper, which has still not been published. So we are waiting for that to happen. Maybe this year, maybe next year, all that stuff will be published. We are waiting for it. Um, the, those are going to be very important papers. The paper about the um, about how much Neanderthal ancestry exists or does not exist within India. And the paper about the origin of the R1A haplogroup. These are very important works that are due to be published reasonably soon. Now, so Dr. Neeraj Rai has said this on, on multiple occasions that Indians mostly don't have Neanderthal ancestry. Now, let's understand what that means. Most Indians have almost no Neanderthal ancestry or negligible Neanderthal ancestry. It doesn't mean that all Indians have zero Neanderthal ancestry. Indians are an enormous population. 1.3 billion people within present-day India itself. If we put together the entire Indian subcontinent, it's more than... It's more than how much? One more than 1.7 billion in, Indians or, or individuals who are of Indian ancestry. That is an enormous population group. It is a substantial portion of all humanity. Now, you go back 2,000, 3,000 years, 5,000 years. So the Neanderthals went extinct around 30 to 20,000 years before today. And the Easternmost evidence of Neanderthal uh, of, of them having lived somewhere is in the Middle East and Israel. You go east uh, further east from that, you see no traces of Neanderthal uh, Neanderthals ever having existed there. So that tells us that the Neanderthals did not go further east from the Middle East region, from Israel. They did not venture into, let's say, Iraq, Mesopotamia, or Iran, or the Indian subcontinent, right? Uh, and they seem to have died out maybe 30,000 years ago or maybe about 22, 23,000 years before today. Roughly, let's say 20,000 years before today. Now, we know the out-of-Africa migration happened and at some point in time, our ancestors, see, our ancestors, we know that 
the out of Africa migrants, which migrated out of Africa about 80 or 70,000 years before today, they went eastwards. They crossed a map. We haven't opened the map yet. How can it be? Where's the map? Here is the map. I must show the map. I cannot have a session ask of Ask Abhijit without showing the map. Ah, ah, finally, the map. <clears throat> so, most likely, the out of Africa migration happened over here. You see, Djibouti, across this strait, which is called the Bab al-Mandib Strait, at some point in time, it was possible to cross this, or maybe they used boats or rafts or whatever. So they crossed over into the uh, into the Arabian Peninsula. They went eastwards and northwards towards Muscat, present-day Muscat, towards present-day Dubai, and then they uh, they crossed over from here the Strait of Hormuz into what is now Iran, and then they went further eastwards into Balochistan, and then they entered the Indian subcontinent. That is what most likely happened. That's what genetics and other evidence also tells us. Yeah, And then from India, they eventually started expanding across Eurasia, east, north, west, everywhere. So India was the first out-of-Africa founder zone. And then as they went westwards, they encountered the Neanderthals. And then there was some intermixing, and uh, as a result, of that, uh, most non-African humans have between two to four or two to six percent Neanderthal ancestry. It's like having one great grandparent or something who was Neanderthal, roughly like that, uh, give or take. Now, so some portion of of uh, humanity, non-African humanity, has Neanderthal ancestry, and some doesn't. So those who stayed back in the Indian subcontinent at that point in time would have had no Neanderthal ancestry. Then the Neanderthals go extinct about 20,000 or so years ago. And then what you have is that you have all kinds of migrations. The story of humanity is the story of migrations. There have been lots of migrations out of India, into India and so on and so forth. It's, it's multiple pulses and waves of migrations back and forth, back and forth. The Indian subcontinent was the major... Uh, founder's zone, most of humanity at some point in time lived or he, uh, most of the non-African humans at some point in time lived in the Indian subcontinent and we know there were lots of migrations out of India and then there was some back reaction as well like we say in physics some people re-entered India at various points in time we know that the Scythians were of Indian ancestry and at some point in time about 2000 years ago they re-entered India, they lived all across the Central Asia, Eurasia, even Eastern Europe. So they would have acquired Neanderthal ancestry. Then they re-entered India about 2000 years ago. And I'm sure lots of people in Northern and Western India have some fractional Scythian ancestry. We know the Greeks also uh, lived in Northwest India. And I'm sure lots of people in Northwest India, in Western India, Northern India would have a little bit, maybe 1%, 2% Greek ancestry as well. The Greeks, they lived all, all, across, all the way across in Europe they would have had Neanderthal ancestry and so on and so on and so forth. So there are lots of these small waves of migrations back and forth, back and forth migrations that would bring in all kinds of mixed ancestry into India. Overall, if you see the India's genetics, they are very much Indian genetics, but there will be these minor components that have come from outside. So most likely the people who live in northern India who have had more exposure to Scythian and Kushan and Greek ancestry compared to the people who live in eastern or southern India, maybe they would have had they would have more Neanderthal ancestry. I would not say that all of them would have it. So if so, that's what I mean, right? So if you look at the Indian population as a whole, 
the entire 1.3 billion strong population of india and then you do a statistical analysis and see you see how much of percentage has neanderthal ancestry substantial neanderthal ancestry or or non trivial non negligible neanderthal ancestry you will see maybe 1% or 2% may have it and roshni it may happen that you are one of those lucky few one of those lucky few who have substantial neanderthal ancestry so you know that's how it happens you have to look at it statistically and then you have to look at it uh, from from an individual perspective so statistically when we talk about india there appears to be i the paper has not been published yet but whenever it is published it will show you that statistically as a whole the 1.3 billion strong indian population seems to have very little neanderthal ancestry but individuals will always be exceptions there will always be individuals who will who will who will differ from the from the average right so that is the explanation that's the explanation i don't know what sort of ancestry i have if i do my 23 and me thing who knows what it will throw up you know and so on so individuals can differ from the norm but overall statistically it tells you a whole a certain story about the statistical overall population of india all right okay astra games says your views on turks having 18% south asian <clears throat> indian indian dna i despise this fake made up term south asia map map where's the map take a look at the map of asia this is asia it's actually eurasia there's no actual distinction between europe and asia but uh, you know the the it's a, it's a eurocentric term so there is a continent called eurasia and what's south of eurasia i mean how does india become south asia it makes no sense if you're talking about the south of asia even iran would be in the south of asia and i would say that indonesia is even more south of south of of asia so this term is a fake made up term the correct term is indian subcontinent so what are my views on turks having 18% indian dna or indian subcontinental dna is it because of slavery and intermixing with populations at the time of invasions in india or what exactly it is so i haven't seen any news report or any research that says that turks have approximately 18% indian dna but assuming you are right what could be the explanation for that so in case they have discovered that the people of turkey the turkish people have approximately 18% indian dna i would not be surprised at all to understand why we have to look at the origin the the history the story of the turkish people the turkic people so what is the story of the turkic or turkish people the origin of the turkic people is most likely in 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 this region which is uh, roughly the region of mongolia that's where the there was this ancient people called the shionyu s i o g n u or something whatever the spelling is s i x i o n g n u shionyu these people they emerged from here they were the 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 chinese called them the shionyu and later they were called the huns right so the huns are the most likely uh the most likely progenitors or origin of the mongolian and the turkic peoples so these shionyu were a very very warlike people about 2 and a half or 2300 years ago they emerged out of this region and they started rampaging across the world 
yeah and it triggered off two big invasions into india firstly the skythian invasion and then the kushan invasion and the skythians and, and kushans they harmoniously assimilated into the indian population yes and they displaced the greeks also later you had these waves of hunnic invasions hunnic attempts to invade india starting around the gupta period about uh, 1500 1600 years before today and the great emperor skandagupta spent his entire life repulsing these hunnic invasions these invaders were called the shweta hunas the white huns and these invasions were these huns were attempting to invade india at the same time that they were attempting to invade rome the roman empire as well so there were a nomadic period people who whose presence spanned the whole of eurasia yeah the huns eventually after the, de the decline of the gupta empire the huns were able to make inroads into india and they too became indianized they they ruled over parts of india northern india etc uh, gandhar afghanistan present day temporarily pakistan and various parts of north india even all the way up to up to western india you know the gujarat rajasthan region as well so you had hunnic origin kings ruling these places and they very rapidly became indianized they became entirely indian yes and then there were there was this uh, hindu shahi dynasty in northern india in afghanistan and pakistan present day pakistan present day north india and then there were the kabul shahis as well these were hunnic kings hunnic dynasties that ruled these regions they were all either hindu or buddhist the kabul shahis were hindus i believe and they actually for a significant period of time repulsed turkic attempts to invade india those these turkic attempts were islamic attempts because the these these huns they later became became the origin of the uh, originators of the turkic peoples and the turks eventually became islamized over a period of time that's a whole different story i'll not go there but you can look it up so these huns these hunnic kings the, the kabul shahi the turk shahi kings who were hunnic and turkic in origin they were hindu buddhist what well, it's the same thing right and they tried their best to safeguard india from the turkic invasions which were their fellow turks who were who were islamic in origin who were islamic in 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 nature character in religion yeah so um so that is one interesting story now these turks the turks who who tried to invade india beginning about 1000 years ago they came from various parts of central asia now let's understand what central asia was there are two major regions in central asia which is the the present day xinjiang region of china currently part of china for now and the western part of central asia so the xinjiang part of china which is currently part of china china was originally known as uttara kuru and what is now turkmenistan uzbekistan kazakhstan tajikistan all that was at that time in the past known as uttara madra these were indian regions these they, they were indian origin kings and dynasties and people who lived there so the whole of central asia was essentially indian in origin in nature in culture you will still find ruins of ancient uh, hindu temples who which and, and stupas and all kinds of things all across central asia even in armenia and so on yeah so the turks they conquered all these regions they they would have indulged in the standard turkic atrocities but yes they would also have intermingled with these people and uh, they would have acquired their genetics as well so assuming they killed off all the males and and then they they procreated with the women which is standard practice for these these people then they would have acquired indian dna through that through the, through, through that through that uh, medium through through that means whatever you want to call it 
So it's not surprising that they would have a substantial percentage of Indian DNA. That is one way it could have happened. And then we know that, um, that the Turks then started uh, trying to enter Anatolia, which was then the uh, a part of the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. And eventually, after a certain, certain period of time, they did succeed. They eventually took Constantinople, yes. And uh, then this region became Turkey. It was always historically Greek or Byzantine, Eastern Roman, yes. And then the whole different story happened. And so uh, that would explain, their, their, their Central Asian origin would explain why they would have approximately 18% or whatever percentage of Indian origin DNA. It is not surprising or perplexing at all. You would also find, uh, if, if proper research is done, lots and lots of Indian origin, uh, Indian DNA in the peoples of the Arabian part of the world, the Middle East, even Egypt, even Eastern Africa and whatnot, a lot more. Once the research is done, you will find all of these truths tumbling out. And then there are different stories associated with each place as to how this Indian DNA introgressed into these populations. A whole different story. You know, if you study the ancient history of Ethiopia, you will realize that Ethiopia was also once very much Indian. Then, yeah, it's a, it's a different story. It's a whole different story. All right, next. <clears throat> Akhand Bharat says, congrats on five hunid. <laughs> All right, thank you. How exactly is America and the West declining? What are the causes for it? And how will it affect India and the rest of the world? Will this decline of American hegemony be a net positive for the world? So, uh, yeah, I do say all the time that uh, the West is declining. So why do I say this? What are, what's the evidence that the West is declining? So look, there are so many different ways in which this decline manifests itself. First of all, you we do see the rise of competing economies. We see the rise of competing powers, which was not there 20, 30 years ago. Yes, you are seeing these new power centers emerge. There is China, there's India. These are major economies that have risen over, the, over time. India is still rising. India is still not nowhere close to China. But yeah. We are seeing the rise of competing economies, competing with the West and the US. And these are not just competing economies, these are competing powers. They are competing powers. China, India, Iran to some extent is still there. Yeah. And then you have the ongoing revival of Russia. Boris Yeltsin purposefully destroyed the Russian economy. Starting 20 years ago, Vladimir Putin put, set off a process of rebuilding the Russian economy and the, the nation overall, and now we can see the, the significant revival of Russia that's happening. So that's so that is something we are seeing. And in parallel to all this, we are seeing a slowing down and decline of the US economy and the Western economy. We are seeing that happen. We are seeing that happen in front of our eyes. We also see that the East, the Eastern world, is now becoming a hub of science and technology and innovation and entrepreneurship. It's happening. It's mostly in China, in in, in various Eastern Asian nations, the those so-called Asian tigers, and also now in India as well. Now that things have things have uh, things are changing, so we see that the East is becoming a hub of all of this. Science, technology, innovation, entrepreneurship, all that. The East, now we, you see, it's visible. The East has more energy and more optimism and more hope. You don't see that in the West. Yeah. 
and you also see the decline the slow gradual decline of western technological and scientific primacy there was a time when all the scientific advancements all the technology it all came from the west now it's not the case now it's not the case we are seeing a decline in western technological and scientific superiority and primacy then you have all these societal issues in the west there is a declining tfr total fertility rate um the 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 birth rates they are declining drastically in the west and then you have the clear loss of 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 cultural and moral and ethical anchors which is obviously the 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 the, the prime example of that is the decline the, the wholesale rejection of christianity because see the west for the past roughly 1500 or or 1000 plus years has been christian it's a christian civilization if you if you want to call it a civilization right so the 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 moral and the moral values the values that the west had until recently were christian values now that is being destroyed that's why the christians are trying to now you know uh, convert the east and that's why there are billions and billions of billions of dollars being poured into india for instance for these purpose of conversion and all that that's happening as we know so so we are seeing see 30 years ago when the pope would visit some part of europe or whatever there will be thousands of people lined in the streets yeah the pope would be treated as a huge celebrity and some figure worthy of incredible adulation today the pope goes somewhere there's no one who comes out to 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 greet him and and to see his his car go around the streets you can see the decline of christianity in the west you see that then you also have the destruction of the family system of family values it's it's, it's ongoing in the west very high divorce rates in the west single families rampant everywhere single families you have so much rampant crime gun violence homelessness child abuse good god yeah you can see that and then there is this new religion in the us called wokeism <laughs> yeah that, that's there then then there's the decline of the education system drastic lowering of standards in the education system the rise of these made up degrees i mean if you have a degree in gender studies what are you going to produce you got if you acquire a degree a college degree a university degree it should it should make you a productive member of society you should be able to produce something that provides value to society if you have a degree in gender studies or god knows what else what do you produce you produce nothing so that's what's happening now all these made up fake fictitious degrees that provide no value to society yes and obviously there is the end of meritocracy in in the west in education which also which is something you are also seeing you can go to social media and look it up what's happening there in the education system yeah and then there is the realization in the society in the west that the in in some members of society that the entire western edifice is built upon plunder and slavery and genocide and they are now realizing that the west has no claim to moral superiority over any other part of the world so all of this is indicative of the very clear ongoing decline of the west it's happening these are the causes and these are the symptoms it's all happening um how will it affect india and the rest of the world it's 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 driving this ongoing geopolitical realignment in which the east is rising there is this new clamor for within all these nations to join the brics plus grouping 
um, people are hedging their bets, nations are hedging their bets, and uh, nations no longer believe that they can rely upon the US to give them security, long-term security and all that. The EU is beginning to realize what's happening and so on. So uh, it's going to lead possibly to a period of chaos, to a period of, of a lot of instability in the world, maybe a period of war and God knows what. We still don't know. I, I don't see, I don't know what the future is going to be like, but it looks like there is an ongoing polarization of the world, an on, ongoing realignment of the world order, an ongoing bifurcation of the global system. On the one hand, you have the old, obsolete, so-called rules-based world order. On the other hand, we have this new grouping that's emerging, very powerful grouping, not yet very powerful, but it's a very influential grouping already, BRICS+. Plus which is the core group of countries is India, Russia, China. Yeah, Iran wants to join. Uh, the Saudis want to join. If Iran and Saudi join, then it's going to be a big deal and so on. So we are witnessing this real, this ongoing realignment of the world, the bifurcation of the global order and so much more. So this decline of the American hegemony, I think, um, I think overall it, it, it will be a net positive for the world if there is an alternative leader that emerges and a leader who is not hegemonic and imperialistic and oppressive and, and rapacious like the like the Anglo-Saxons have been. The past four, five hundred years, the Anglo-Saxons have ruled the world. It's just one empire. It was a British empire, then it's the American empire. Now, these are two manifestations of the same entity, of the same thing, the same force, the Anglo-Saxon empire. It's ruled the world for the past four, three, four, five hundred years and it's been terrible for the world. It's destroyed the world. It has siphoned off the world's wealth and, and placed it into in the, in the hands of the West. And it's destroyed the rest of the world. It's been very bad for civilization and for, world, for the world and for humanity. So if a different kind of leadership emerges, then it will be good for the world. But if you have the rise of China, for instance, which has the same kind of imperial ambitions, then nothing much will change. Nothing much will change. Overall, it'll still go the same way. But if something like, if, and if, if a nation like India manages somehow to emerge as the leader, then maybe things will change. But first, India will have to change itself. Because right now, India is itself not ruled. Well, you know what the problems in India are. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's the deal. That's the deal. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Abhay says, it's been more than a month since Mr. Rishi Sunak became the became the president of the UK. It's it's a very short period of time, but what do you think of him as the president? I think Mr. Rishi Sunak, yeah, he has been president of the UK for, for a week. Uh, well, see, as the president of the UK, you are actually not very important. Whether you are the president of the UK, see, if he is the, if the UK's leader, president, like you say, is an insignificant person. There is He or she doesn't really hold any real power. The UK is a vassal state of the US. The real power lies in the US. Whoever becomes president of the UK just does what he or she is told, like a good boy or good girl. And uh, so as you can see, Mr. Rushi Sunak, as in his capacity as president of the UK, has been going to the G20 summit. He was very happy there. Uh, you can see he's smiling and beaming. He also made his way to Ukraine where he met the great uh, actor, Mr. Zelensky. Yeah? And he met uh, Mr. Macron and all that. So he's he's getting used to being a world leader and all that. But he's a leader only in name. The president of the UK is not, <laughs> is not uh, 
someone who rolls the real power the real power resides somewhere far away somewhere across the pond like they like they say across the atlantic ocean yeah uh, so mm, so the real power lies if more in washington if you are the prime minister of the us then you may have more power the president of the uk doesn't have so much power so overall i don't care about mr rishi sunak maybe a good guy i i i think overall it's better him than somebody else from our perspective at least uh, it's an indian origin person but it doesn't really matter much <clears throat> it makes lots of indians happy good for them enjoy it uh, i'm not sure how long he will last as the president of the uk as long as the prime minister of the us wants him to last i, I assume <laughs> so yeah that's what, that's what i can say about how about this matter next question the next question i wait for it to come sorry where is it here it is mazar chacher says why does hunger persist in the world today despite the fact that humans have achieved so much of prosperity over the decades what are the ways to eradicate hunger do you think hunger can be eliminated from the world through philanthropy you know we already have the means and the money and the resources to eradicate all world hunger there is so much wealth and prosperity in the west yeah they have the money they have the resources to immediately within within a week eradicate all world hunger they don't want to because they stay rich at the expense of the rest of the world at the expense of the so called global south or the third world especially africa you know what the british did in india how did they induce, how did they engineer these artificial famines we had so much incredibly fertile land in india like we do still do yeah but they they forced the indian farmers to grow cash crops instead of food crops so they forced indian indian farmers to grow indigo for instance or they forced indian farmers to grow opium or something else but not food crops and then what and obviously there would, there would still be food that would be cultivated but that would be shipped off somewhere else and so on so the british created this art engineered these artificial famines in india right now in africa there are so there is so much coffee being being uh, being planted being cultivated coffee is being cultivated and uh, things like that and various other other luxury crops are being cultivated for european consumption if the african leaders were to refuse and say that we will not cultivate these crops anymore we will cultivate let's say wheat or or rice or or whatever else then those african leaders will be deposed there will be a color revolution and they'll be bumped off and then another pliable leader will be installed and then the same thing continues that's how they deliberately keep africa dirt poor that's what the the, the west is doing this poverty that you see in africa and certain other nations it is artificially induced poverty Africa is still mostly entirely almost entirely colonized even today what the east india company and the british raj were doing in india the past 300 years you still seeing the very same things happening in africa today that's why there is so much destitution and poverty and hunger in africa you see that's that's what's happening it can all be eliminated the europeans need to get out of africa stop interfering in the internal affairs of african nations let them resolve their differences and, and go on with their lives on their own without external interference but that won't happen right that's what's happening 
most african nations have corrupt dictators ruling them these corrupt dictators are allowed to rule despite you know the west talks about democracy and human rights they have all these world indices and all that and yet <laughs> they tolerate this they don't tolerate it they ensure there is no democracy in africa they ensure there are corrupt dictators ruling african nations so that because they benefit from this that's the reason why there is so much suffering and hunger and poverty and destitution in the in the world it is all engineered being engineered actively as we speak right now by various western powers that's what's happening okay mona lisa says um what's the agreement with the usa regarding iso and why did we do it do we have any agreement with the usa vis-a-vis -vis isro um see i'm not sure if we have any specific one agreement with us about with about regarding isro i think india and the us or or isro and nasa for instance have had this uh, history of ongoing cooperation and collaboration in a variety of ways for instance we all know about mangalyaan chandrayaan etc the first chandrayaan mission was launched i think in 2008 or something yes um chandrayaan 1 and it was a successful mission the the satellite the the spacecraft was in orbit around the moon it did a lot of good work it's still around there but it's dead now uh, it's run out, run out of power so on chandrayaan 1 we had i believe two american instruments the moon mineralogy mapper was one and the other was a uh, a miniature synthetic aperture radar so two instruments came from nasa they were installed on chandrayaan 1 and the other thing was that chandrayaan 1 had this uh, instrument called the moon impact probe which was an impactor which went and slammed into the moon's surface around the south pole region i believe of the moon and then there was another nasa satellite that picked up uh, and no i i think it was chandrayaan itself which then analyzed the cloud of debris that came out of the impact when this impactor hit the moon slammed into the moon at high velocity it it it, it uh, threw off this huge plume of debris boom like that and then chandrayaan what it did was it it uh, analyzed the debris and it discovered there is water in that debris and that was the first confirmation that there is water on the moon it was done by chandrayaan 1 and there was a nasa involvement in that so that's one example and when it comes to chandrayaan 2 which uh, was launched in 2019 i think uh, it was a partial success the lander did not work it 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 crashed onto the moon surface at the very last moment it went upside down i will yeah so on that itself on that too there was i believe a laser retro reflector which was provided by the americans yeah it's a device that reflects light back to its source with very little scattering so if you are sitting on earth and you are aiming at that at that instrument on the moon with a laser beam then within i think 2 or 3 seconds the laser beam com beam comes back to you and you can uh, do various uh, tests using that yeah so that laser retro reflector was also provided by the americans so there is this history of ongoing cooperation between america and india in the space program india is not yet a huge competitor to the us so they are happy to to collaborate in a, in a in a variety of ways if india becomes a major space power like it has the potential to be then maybe so much cooperation may not happen or maybe it will we'll see how it goes yeah 
So that's what it is. So I'm not aware of any single or specific agreement between India and the US regarding ISRO, but there is a history, a long, long history of ongoing cooperation and collaboration between ISRO and NASA mm -hmm. and India and the US in the field of space, space exploration. Yeah. Karthik says, if we cannot see what is outside the observable universe, how did the James Webb Space Telescope capture the first galaxies after, after the Big Bang? It's because the first galaxies that emerged after, after the Big Bang are part of the observable universe. They are not outside the observable universe. See, you see this ball here? Think of it as the observable universe. We are at the center. We are at the very center of it. And after the Big Bang, very, very soon after the Big Bang, uh, the universe was about this size. After the, you know, very, very soon after the Big Bang, less than a second after the, after the Big Bang. And then it expanded over time and so on. And after about 200 or so million years after the Big Bang, the first galaxies emerged. And these were inside the universe, not outside the universe. They are all part of the observable universe. And because they are part of the observable universe, that's why the James Webb Space Telescope has succeeded in, in capturing the photons, the, the infrared light that came out of those galaxies, all those 13 point whatever million years ago, 13.6 or so billion years before today. And that's how the JWST has been able to capture the light from there. So it was, these galaxies were part of the observable universe. They are inside the observable universe, not outside. That's why it is so. Very interesting science that's coming out of the JWST and many challenges they're facing, micrometeoroid impacts and whatnot. But overall, it's doing well. And uh, it's in the process of revolutionizing our understanding of the universe. So yeah, great work being done there. Okay, Daniel Nicholson says, ours being a three-dimensional world, we perceive length, breadth, height, the fourth dimension being space. Space, uh, sorry, time. Not space-time, time. Uh, how many dimensions do we altogether have? And with our present brain capacities, could we ever imagine of understanding and feeling all those dimensions? So yes, uh, the world that we see, we perceive it as being a three-dimensional world. Length, breadth, height three dimensions. And then there is this mysterious thing called time, which in the framework of general relativity is the fourth dimension. So in general relativity, we inhabit a four-dimensional universe, space-time, space-time. And within space-time, we have these various uh, phenomena that happen. Space-time is the stage upon which we dance, upon which the universe dances. Yeah. And the curvature of space-time is per perceived as what we perceive as the force of gravity. The uh, and so on and so forth, yeah. Um, the curvature of space-time is, is what we perceive as gra gravity. So uh, according to general relativity, there are four dimensions. According to our experienced uh, world, we have three dimensions, but time is there, yeah. Now, according to um, Kaluza-Klein theory, which came out 100 years ago or so, they did calculations in five dimensions. They introduced an extra dimension and that threw out some interesting results. According to one version of string theory, there are 10 dimensions. According to another version of string theory, there are 11 dimensions. According to bosonic string theory, there are 26 dimensions. <laughs> we have never found those dimensions. Yeah. And recently, uh, Dr. Subhashkak, who was on this channel, on this uh, on the Abhijit Chavda podcast just a couple of weeks ago, he has been doing very interesting work in the past two and a half years. 
and he has demonstrated that the optimal number of dimensions in the universe is not two or three or four or whatever. It is E. E is called Euler's number. Look up what E is. It is an irrational number. Less than three. But not quite two. Yeah? So the universe has E dimensions. And that actually kind of resolves many of the problems and, and contradictions in, in physics. So, we don't quite know for sure, but it's quite possible the universe has E dimensions. Not 3, not 4, not 10, not 11, not 26, but E dimensions. That would be weird, right? But yeah, the world is weird. And that seems to resolve many of the paradoxes like the Hubble tension like what what is the like the nature of, of gravity and why gravity has had different strengths at different epochs of the universe's history it also kinds of kind of throws light upon the the mysteries of dark matter and dark energy and so on very interesting research dr kark is doing yeah so yeah that's kind of what's happening and uh, very interesting work yeah so yeah, that's what I can say about this. But what about our brain capacity and all that? Um, so imagine there are more than three or four dimensions. Let's say there are ten dimensions. So one of the uh, one of the things that that's been theorized is that these dimensions are ultra microscopic dimensions and curled up. So only if you go into the quantum domain will you be able to perceive those extra dimensions. Otherwise, you will not be able to perceive them and all that, and so on. So yeah, it's all theoretical. There is no evidence for that. But that's how they make. They have been able to make string theory work mathematically by introducing extra dimensions. We're not sure if they actually exist. Possibly there are not 10 dimensions, there are E dimensions possibly. So it's all still a work in progress, but very interesting work done by Dr. being done by Dr. Kak right now. Very important and very interesting work. All right, let's take some more questions. A few questions here and there. Pranav says, Why, which books to read to understand power? Well, typically I don't do book recommendations because there are so many caveats you have to give, especially when it comes to books about history. But if you want to talk about books about power, I can give you a couple of recommendations. So let me put, uh, let's let's do a Google search, shall we? Let's do a Google search. Let me give you two book recommendations. One is 48 Rules of Power by Brian Greene. This is an interesting book. I haven't read it for more than more than 15 years, I would say. But yeah, it's a very interesting book. It's about personal power. Yeah. About it's it's a very what what they would call a Machiavellian book, you know, how to manipulate people and how to acquire more power at the expense of others and so on, like a zero-sum game at some at times it's like that and so on. It's an interesting book. Uh, it's called The 48 Rules of Power by Brian Greene. Um, that's one possible recommendation. The other is the Dictator's Handbook. The Dictator's Handbook. Uh, why is there a backlash? backlash there? there you go. <clears throat> so this book is by uh, two authors. One is Alastair Smith and the other is Bruce Bueno de Mesquita. This is an interesting book as well. This is about political power. It's about uh, more large-scale power structures and all that. So here are two book recommendations about power. One is Brian Greene. One is this other one, The Dictator's Handbook. <clears throat> Both are interesting books and there are so many more. But yeah, you want to start off, start off with these two possibly and see how it goes for you, whether you like them, whether you can make sense of them or not. Interesting books about, about power. Okay, let's take um, one more question. 
Samarth says, would you like to see your predictions about Twitter becoming a trillion dollar company go wrong and instead witness Coup replacing replacing Twitter worldwide? Which other competitors do you see rising alongside with Coup? So I have, so, so Coup is a Twitter knockoff. It's an Indian social media platform. I think I have a Coup account. I had made it about two or three years ago. At that time, I used Coup for just a while and then I gave up on it. It was very buggy, extremely poor user experience, not fun to use at all, just to crash and it was not fun to use. Twitter was so much easier to use. So I have a Coup account. I haven't used it in close to two years. Hopefully it's better now. I, I hear that the Brazilians have adopted Coup. Lots of Brazilians have, have moved to Coup and uh, so on. So if it is so good, but I would say that, you know, I, I hope Ku does well or or any other Indian social media startup. We need to have our own platforms and competitors. Uh, nothing would make me happier than seeing my prediction go go wrong and an Indian platform emerging and becoming a major competitor to Twitter. Nothing would make me happier. So I made that prediction based on the logic. Uh, I, mean, I mean, based on logic that, yeah, it looks like once Elon Musk takes over, he knows how to take a company to the next level, multiple levels, and he knows how to make money. He knows how to succeed. So based on his track record, it's quite likely, it's quite possible that he may end up turning Twitter into a trillion dollar company within the next two to five years. It's very possible. Let's see if it happens or not. But yeah, I would be happy if an Indian social media platform were to become a major competitor. The Twitter, right now, I think Coup is very far away from being that. I hope the user experience is better now on Coup. But the thing about Twitter is that it's it's the global uh, meeting place. You, you can interact with people from all across the world. Within five minutes, you can take a pulse of what's happening across the world or in a certain country. What's the sentiment, the mood of the people over there? Right now, you can go to Twitter and immediately see what's happening in sport, let's say, or in politics, or in India, or in the US. What are the Americans talking about? You don't see that much in coup because the whole world hasn't adopted coup yet. So I think that uh, whoever is running coup or whatever else needs to be innovative. Don't just create a knockoff, uh, just a clone of what uh, Twitter is, but show, show you know, be innovative, add extra features, something that others don't have and so on. And maybe that that could be more interesting and make things really work and, and really differentiate it from the existing products. Yeah, so <clears throat> that's what I could say about this. Um, what else? Let's take a question from Swapnil. Africa is building a great green wall across the Sahel region from Senegal to Djibouti to hold back the advancing Sahara Desert. Will it succeed in making the region lush green and habitable again? What is the Sahel region? Let's take a look at the map. Once again, we have the map on the screen. Where it is? Where is it? Here it is. The Sahel region is the region between... It's essentially the, the white part, you know, the, 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 the transition zone between the Sahara Desert and the, the remainder of Africa. So... Uh, so several African nations are planning to build a, a great green wall in this region, you know, artificial reforestation or, or afforestation to uh, check the advance of the Sahara Desert. Will they succeed? It's very possible that they succeed. See, uh, the advance of a desert is a result of natural or, or whatever climate change. Now, climate change is a slow, gradual creeping process. But human interventions can can move much faster than the pace at which climate change moves. So it is definitely possible if, if all these various nations come together and act in unison 
that they will be able to possibly in the next 10 or 20 years genuinely create this entire belt of forest which could very much end up stopping the advance of the Sahara Desert. And once you create an artificial forest, the entire climate changes in the in the region because forests reduce the temperature. You know, uh, wherever you have a forest, the, te- the temperature drops several degrees, maybe two degrees, three degrees, four degrees even, depending on the size of the, of the forest. So if you create an artificial forest, you, you're going to create a, a zone in Africa where the temperature is lower, which would bring in rain, which would then expand the forest. So it could end up, you know, properly checking the uh, the advance of the Sahara Desert. So it is entirely possible that these nations could succeed if they act in unison, act properly. It's entirely possible they could do it in the next 20 or so years. Very much possible. Maybe even 10 years. Right. Okay, I still have lots of other questions, but let me take some questions from the live chat. So in case you all have questions for me in the live chat, please go ahead and ask me and I shall take a few. Elon. Yes, Elon is the name. Ellen? Well, maybe. (laughs) All right. Do we have questions for me? And I shall take some. Can you explain about about the Crusades? Well, I would have to take a few hours to explain what happened there. The Crusades. But to explain in a nutshell, this was the attempt by European powers to expand their hegemony, they expand their sphere of influence into the Middle East. So the Middle East was at the time ruled by the Arabs, by the by the by the Muslims, yes. Uh, and the, the the Christians called that region the where where to, today you have Israel. They call they called it the Holy Land, you know, the birthplace of Jesus Christ, uh, apparently, and all that. So they wanted to reclaim it and bring it under Christian rule again, and that's what it was all about. So various kings and rulers of 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 uh, Europe under the uh, under the banner of the Vatican, of the of the Roman Catholic Church, they made these various incursions into this region, multiple campaigns, which were called the Crusades. At some point in time, it succeeded, and eventually, it was it was defeated by by Sal- Saladin, Salahuddin Ayyubi. So that is in very brief about the Crusades. Maybe I could take it up in the future and give a deeper, more detailed explanation. I have absolutely heard. Of no evidence that our head is older than the feet. <laughs> I, 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 I have absolutely no idea about this. How is the head older than the feet? In, in which way? So yeah. So I'm sorry. I may be ignorant. Okay, and I, I may not know about it. I don't know everything in the world. There are things that I do not know about. So maybe. But I have personally never ever come across a claim that the head is older than the feet, even slightly. I <laughs> never heard of it. Sorry. Uh-huh. Okay, Somnath says, what is Project Kali by DRDO? What's the future of directed energy weapons in India? So this is a story that keeps cropping up. But uh, DRDO has never made any pronouncements, any announcement of any such thing. Yeah, DRDO, uh, uh, Kali, Project Kali. So people speculate about this, that maybe it's some some incredibly powerful world-ending weapon that will... <laughs> I don't know what it is, yeah? It... it seems to have been in the early 2000s some kind of directed energy weapons program or some kind of experiment that the, the kilo ampere linear uh, injector or something i don't know what it was kilo ampere is a very 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 tiny small amount of energy yeah kilo ampere very small very small so um 
I don't know if it has evolved or, or morphed into something major. I have no idea. DRDO has made no announcements and made publicized nothing. So the answer is I don't know. It's for DRDO if they wish, if they choose to do so, to announce whether something is being done, whether this project still exists, or maybe they should not, if it is something that's sensitive and something uh, that is important for India's national security. In that case, they should not announce it. So the, the answer from, from my perspective is I don't know, because the government has announced nothing, DRDO has announced nothing for the past 15 years, as far as I know. What's the future of directed energy weapons in India? I hope the future is good. What's a directed energy weapon? Essentially, think of a laser. A laser is this, this pointer that we have, which throws this collimated beam, beam of light, uh, <clears throat> which which doesn't you know, diverge in that manner. That's, that's what a laser is. And if you pump in enough energy into that light, it can poke holes through solid surfaces. So that's a directed energy weapon. So you could... So today what you have is that... Uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, you had this James Bond movies in which you had lasers that could, you know, uh, cut through uh, metal sheets and all that. So that was what, what the that was the promise that lasers held. And today, I believe such lasers do exist, and such lasers do have military applications. So imagine there's a plane flying in the air, and you shoot a laser at it. So it will poke a hole through the aircraft and it will crash it. Or there's a missile that's coming in. And instead of shooting a missile to intercept that missile, you just fire a laser at it. And it will destroy the missile in mid-air. Imagine there's a ballistic missile coming in at, at Mach 23 speed. And yet, if you have a laser, you can you can take it out. So there is a lot of potential, military military usage potential that lasers and directed energy weapons have. I am not sure what the status is in India of the research and development of such weapons. I hope it is being done, maybe in DRDO, maybe somewhere else, but no such announcements have been made. So once again, I don't know, but the, the potential is there. So hopefully this work is being done and hopefully there is a good future for that. Right. Okay, let's take one more question if there is something interesting that I can take up. <clears throat> um, what is it? Where is it? Where is it? Do we have anything interesting? Do we have anything interesting? You've said that multipolarity is good, but I agree, I agree. But won't there be multiple wars in the world due to this? Well, if you have multipolarity and everybody wants to kill each other, fight each other, then there will be multiple wars. Even in unipolarity, you have seen wars, but you don't hear about them. Or maybe you choose not to look at them. How many wars has the world seen during during the unipolar and bipolar phase? Go and look up a list of US interventions in the world. There's a whole laundry list of wars that they have created that they have caused. War is has always been a part of humanity, whether it's a unipolar world or a bipolar world or a multipolar world or whatever it is. Wars have been allowed. So there's nothing you can do about it. So you cannot say that. Wars, there will be more wars because the world will, will become multipolar. No, wars have always been around. There are wars happening right now as we speak. We still don't have a world, multipolar world right now. We still have a mostly unipolar world right now as we speak. And still there are wars going on. There is Yemen going on. There is there is Ukraine going on. There are conflicts in Africa that you have not heard about. There is the Eritrea, Ethiopia thing going on. There is there is the, the, the Darfur situation in Sudan. There is so much more, more happening that you, do, that you are not aware of. 
wars have always been there so i don't i don't agree that multipolarity will cause an upsurge in the number of conflicts in the world i don't think so okay <laughs> okay i hope i hope that answer makes sense uh shaheen is right the history of mankind is the history of warfare unfortunately that is the truth yeah uh all right do we have anything else? so many questions i'm sure i'll be missing lots of them <laughs> couldn't the us be using saudi arabia to get into bricks and get some inner information out of by means of saudi yeah if they are children they would do it but <laughs> that's not how it works you can get inner inner information through a variety of means you don't need to put saudi arabia into bricks for that okay um anything else yeah i don't know <laughs> Are we in Kali Yuga? Yes, we are in Kali Yuga. It's great fun, isn't it? Uh, do we have any other interesting questions? I have no idea about the Kalpa Vigraha idol. Okay, I have no idea about it. Sorry. Some people say it's 39 million years old. Some people say it's 27 million, 1000 years old. An idol, a statue made of metal cannot be dated. How do you date a statue made of metal? You can carbon date something if it has organic substances. Metal is an inorganic substance. How do you date that? So if you have a metallic object, how does anybody decide that it's so many years old? So I see these claims being made that it's 27,000 or 23,000 or 37,000 years old or something. I have no idea what is the factual basis on which the, these claims are made. And I have not seen any research paper or any actual, any genuine research about what this idol is, this statue is, and where it's come from or whatever. I see blog posts and various other claims made on social media and various other things which cannot be relied upon. Where's the primary evidence? Where's the primary sources of where it's come? So I have no idea because I've never been able to find any actual substantive research or study or evidence of what this thing is. So, so my answer is I have no idea as to what this is. <clears throat> share my favorite books. Too many to share. And it would take a long time. Okay. Hindi channel banaiye sir. Mera ek Hindi channel hai, lekin main uske upar itna active nahi hoon, kyunki meri Hindi itni achhi nahi hai. Vaise meri Hindi bahut achhi hai, lekin main itna comfortable nahi hoon Hindi mein baat karne mein when it comes to technical technical subjects, technical matters and and scholarly matters, kyunki because my entire study, my entire education, all of that has been in English. That's called mental colonization. Maybe in the future, maybe next year, I may become more active on the Hindi channel. Maybe, maybe I will do that. I, I hope to do that. I will have to do some, put some things in place for that. But yes, that is on my to-do list to become active on a regular basis on the Hindi channel. Hopefully next year, hopefully very soon. All right. I think we are at the end of today's session. So thank you so much, all of you, once again for participating, for asking all these questions. I apologize to all of you, to the hundreds and thousands of you who have uh, asked me questions. I've not been able to take them. I always try to take as many as possible and the best possible questions. And I will keep on doing this 
but for now we are at the end of today's session so thank you so much everybody once again very grateful i will see you very soon in the next live stream until then take care and see you bye good night good day see you later see you soon <laughs>